Sound of Fire and Soul, a community where leaders gather to unite in sovereignty in today's world. I'm your host, Michelle Sorrow, a seasoned and heart-centered coach and mentor on a mission to take you on a journey of self-empowerment with weekly guidance and channeled wisdom. Fire and Soul features brave and daring conversations with extraordinary leaders who have awakened from the illusion to help you claim sovereign leadership in life, love, and entrepreneurship. Let's listen, learn, and stand together as models for our new world, starting now. Hey there, and welcome back to Fire and Soul. Well, by now, many of us are familiar with the term mass formation psychosis as a result of both doctors Peter McCullough and Dr. Robert Malone have been on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. In fact, over 50 million people listened to that latter episode and then went right to the internet and Googled, what is mass formation psychosis? Well, there's a little bit more to that story that we dive into in this conversation, but I wanted to bring onto this show the LA-based psychiatrist who literally wrote the book on the topic. So Dr. Mark McDonald wrote the book, United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. And in his book, he explains that America is suffering from two pandemics, the well-publicized viral pandemic and the hidden pandemic of fear which may be more dangerous and damaging than the virus itself, he says. Dr. Mark McDonald's clinical opinions on mass delusional psychosis are widely publicized in national and local media, including the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, LA Times, Newsmax, Tucker Carlson, Fox News, The Daily Mail, PragerU, The High Wire, Dr. Mercola, Charlie Kirk, Dr. Drew, the list goes on and on. I'm really honored to have this conversation because in it, Dr. Mark McDonald helps us understand what mass delusional psychosis is, how to discern whether there's an opening, when in conversation with someone suffering from it to try to help break them free, and how to respond to those who may never budge. This is such a potent conversation, and I feel so honored by his time, and I know that you're going to get a ton of value. And if you'd like to pick up the book, again, it's called United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis, and I'll leave that uh, resource in the show notes, as well as other places to learn from him and to listen to his podcast, to read his articles on Substack, and so much more. Uh, Yeah, so without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mark McDonald. Show Dr. Mark McDonald. Shall I call you Dr. McDonald or Mark throughout this conversation? You can use my first name. That's fine. You're not a patient. Okay. Uh, well, thank you very much. Well, actually, we're practically neighbors. And uh, and, and I want to let my listeners know that now I'm going to get to meet you in real life in just a couple of weeks as you're a speaker at a nearby uh, church that promotes messages like what you have to share based on your runaway best-selling book, let me get the title right, United States of Fear, How America Fell Victim to a Mass Delusional Psychosis. You have been aggressively sought out, especially after Dr. Robert Malone was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast and kind of did a hybrid of some terms, right? Professor Matthias Desmet's Mass Formation, Your Mass Delusional Form or Psychosis. And then it was like Mass 
formation, psychosis, broke the internet. Google had a lot of editing to do on the fly. But what has life been like ever since uh, you've become probably one of the most sought after experts in this very niche space? Well, Michelle, that's a great summary of the Robert Malone upending of the table at Google. Many people kind of missed that. Uh, he did actually combine two phrases, one mine and one Matthias Desmet's into a kind of redundant phrase, mass formation psychosis. The last two words are actually the same. Uh, got a lot of heat for it, but that's okay. You know, building up attention to this cause is really uh, part of the process, as long as you don't get completely incinerated in the process. I've been quite fortunate, actually, to have avoided a lot of the most vicious, uh, vile, sadistic kinds of attacks that my colleagues like uh, Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and Dr. Tyson have suffered from. I don't know why that is. Uh, perhaps it's because I'm a psychiatrist. So I try to speak about this from a more human perspective, a more emotional, psychological one. So I'm not hammering and pounding away at the, the bench science uh, like they are and like they should be because that's, that's their job. That's their specialty. But I have received a few very odd, very hateful, vile comments, starting when I was at the Supreme Court steps in June of 2020 with Dr. Simone Gold to speak about closing schools and how it's child abuse at the Orange County School Board of Education on the similar topic about a month before that. And then about six to nine months ago, when I was speaking in a Zoom call with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis about ending mask mandates for children. And that was really when I started to get a lot of uh, local heat after that went into the papers throughout Florida. And I received calls from newspaper reporters in Florida who wanted me to give a statement. And of course, my statement was entirely twisted. I was placed on front page news throughout Florida with a photograph of myself talking to Ron DeSantis through Zoom with pictures of uh, ivermectin and the words horse dewormer under them had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Psychiatrists advising Governor DeSantis, spreading medical misinformation, putting kids' lives at risk, this kind of dramatic nonsense. One man actually sent me an email every hour for 20 hours from his email account with just one expletive. That's all it was, just an expletive. What was it? Following that talk. It was asshole. Okay. Nice. All and, right. Just over yeah, and over I, and over again. Just every clearly, hour for 24 hours. Right. I thought it would be fun. Did that. Clearly sane uh, couple, and rational and yeah, on a mission. He certainly changed my mind I and mean, he was a mind changer. So I had that. <laughs> I had death threats. You know, I know where you live from people probably that didn't even know really where California is on the map. I had nasty messages placed to my assistant in my clinical practice uh, who doesn't deserve any of this. I have yet to actually have been confronted by anyone face-to-face. -face. Most of the people that do this are trolls or cowards or both. Uh, they're often paid and they come in force and then they disappear. Uh, I get it on Facebook. I get it on Twitter. I've had a few uh, reviews of my book, United States of Fear, from people recently who clearly have not read the book. Mm -hmm. They have uh, simply heard about some of my talking points and they've decided to just write nasty comments on Amazon. They're not even a verified purchase, so they haven't even bought it, obviously. That's about the extent of what I've suffered. So I, I want to say this not, not to say that I'm lucky, but to really encourage everyone out there who is understanding, alert, awake, aware of the lies, the propaganda, the abuse that we have suffered as citizens under our government, under corporations, under 
sophisticated and vicious media and the collusion between all three, I want to say to them, take a risk. I am not a courageous person because I have a courage gene or I went to the courage gym and I went and worked out and built up my courage muscle every day. No, I simply made the decision, as Dennis Prager says in his broadcast all the time, I made the decision to be courageous and just to take whatever heat came. And honestly, the heat has not been nearly as bad as it could have been. But in recompense, I have had the privilege, the honor, the, the beneficence of meeting people who are strong, who are smart, who are fighting, who have lost a lot in their lives that I would never have had the opportunity of meeting. I... I dined at the home of Mickey Willis, the filmmaker of Plandemic and the author, with his wife and children and Judy Mikovits and Lara Logan, all at the same time in Austin last month after he filmed me for his third movie. And it was such a wonderful, lovely, rejuvenating moment that I would never have had otherwise. And these moments have been coming to me right and left that have really sustained me and kept me largely optimistic, certainly healthy. And absolutely not at all fearful. Oh, I love that. It's it's the discipline of being courageous one moment at a time. And thank you for sharing that because it sheds light on the other side of what it's like to be brave and to move forward, even if you don't know where it's all going to go, right? You, I think the light shines brightly on those who are awake, aware, evolved. I know you said evolved, and I was like, that's so good too. Without being condescending on someone who's maybe not quite there, and we're going to get into the camps of you know, the mass delusional uh, psychosis, but so many people are afraid of what's happening to the Rogans and the McCullas and the Malones and all of the people who are so brave to speak up, right? Being on the cover of New York Times as the dirty dozen like Mercola. And, uh, but yet not enough people are speaking about, but what happens when you're shining your light, speaking the truth, the other, sorry, I'll just call it lights find you. We find each other. That tribe grows and it's a whole different conversation that it feels like it's the very purpose that we're supposed to be on this planet in this time. So I just want to first say thank you from the bottom of my heart for what you do. I also want to share with my audience who's been following my journey. I took a stark like 180 on this show in September because I was called. There was no other choice. So as I was listening to Dale Bigtree, who was massively profound for me in my awakening journey, and I heard you on his show uh, on the podcast, uh, Saturday yes. late night, it's 11 o'clock, and I email everything on your website, your, everyone who handles you. <laughs> it was like, I don't know if this is possible, and I don't expect it to happen soon, but, you know, and, and I got a response on Monday. So that was yesterday, and here you are. So I just want to say thank you for what you are bringing and all of the uh, wisdom Speaking of, let's take it back for those who are not getting an accurate point of view because they tried the Google search that's been edited in real time. That was caught in many, many videos of mass uh, formation psychosis. Can you explain it? And then let's walk through what's happening now. And then I, well, I'll start there. Not, Not too many questions. We'll start with this, that. So this is an important concept to understand. And a lot of people are still confused by it. I began writing and speaking about mass delusional psychosis in June or July of 2020. You can actually find the video of one of my talks a couple months later on my second trip to DC on Charlie Kirk's website, where it was taken from the AFLDS summit that occurred either in July or October. I can't remember which one it was that I talked about this, but the concept is actually not that sophisticated or, or complex. It's pretty understandable. The idea is that 
when people mass together in an irrational way to follow a belief system that doesn't make any sense, they are suffering from a mass delusional psychosis. And this is not new. Uh, we've seen this before. The, the great tulip craze in the Northern European countries, I think it was in the 1600s or 1700s, where people were spending tens of thousand dollars on specifically colored tulips because they were considered to be rare that caused a bubble that had never been seen before in modern economics that is now still taught in macroeconomics throughout uh, universities around the world, caused a blow up and a collapse eventually when the truth, the reality of the fact that the different colored tulips were really no more valuable than any of the others caused the entire market to fall apart. Later in the United States, in the Salem witch trials, a whole small, but a whole village got caught up in the mass delusional psychosis of witchcraft, that these young women were actually possessed and were were casting spells, interestingly, casting spells in a very convenient fashion on their husbands, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning the husbands of the women who were going after these women, Mm -hmm. which then led them to be tried and convicted. And then, of course, thrown into water or burned alive and, and executed because they were supposedly sorceresses and they were threatening the cohesion of the village. And these women, is largely driven by women actually, went after them in order to protect the sanctity and the safety of their town. But they did it in an irrational way and a lot of lives were lost. This has happened before. It's just, it hasn't happened on a worldwide scale in the way that it had been in the last couple of years. I don't focus on the world in my book. I focus on the U.S. But certainly in the United States specifically, the entire country was taken over very swiftly by an irrational belief fed by fear that resulted in and is still resulting in this ongoing dependency on top-down intervention to save us from ourselves and to save us from this terrible boogeyman virus. That's what I mean by mass delusional psychosis. And that's really what Professor Desmet in Belgium means and speaks about it as well, although he focuses on the totalitarian aspect of it and its use as a tool by a totalitarian regime. I focus on it on the micro level, on the individual level, because I speak and I work with individuals. That's my job. I'm not a professor like he is. I'm a, I'm a clinician. I treat individuals with mental illness. So I speak to the individual and I speak to the mental illness that is inherent in this belief system that is, again, fueled by fear and is expressing itself in irrational, self-destructive behaviors towards the self and towards the others in our midst, our spouses, our children, our family, our friends. It's really incredible. Um, I also want to just share the four elements that uh, Professor Desmond talks about in mass formation, because I know it was a bit of a hybrid that uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. McCullough and Dr. Robert Malone spoke about on the Joe Rogan podcast, as well as everywhere else, Dale Big Tree everywhere, right? I don't mean to be condescending as I say this. I'm just going to say it as I heard it being sort of uh, parroted. Number one is must be in a period of prolonged isolation, lockdowns. Number two, must be withdrawn of all the fun things that they used to enjoy, right? Isolation. Must be constant and incessant free-floating anxiety. And then finally, there, there must be only one singular solution offered by an entity in authority, i.e. the vaccines. Fast forward to then, we've got certain groups, right, in this sort of formation, in this psychosis, specifically even here to the States. When did you start to see that manifest before your eyes? I know you've shared some stories on on many other podcasts, but so similar to mine, because I live in LA too, that that sort of epicenter of insanity. But how did you begin to see it 
with your own eyes as you'd walk out your front door? Well, there's one important point, and I, I place this in my book in the first two chapters. All of those enumerated criterion that you just mentioned, Michelle, with the exception of the last one, pre-existed the pandemic, the viral pandemic. And I think this is a really a critical point because a lot of people believe that in March, everyone went nuts. They didn't go nuts in March. It was exacerbated in March. Similar to the way that someone might have a a bipolar manic episode. Well, all of a sudden he became bipolar. No, he didn't. He was bipolar for a long time before that. And he was showing signs and symptoms of that disease, but it exploded in a manic episode at some point later in his life. This is what happened in America and, of course, the rest of the world in March, April, May of 2020. For example, breakdown of personal relationships. We didn't lose our personal relationships in March, April, May of 2020. We have been losing them for a number of years. We have been losing them because we have been encouraging people to live isolated, separate lives with their stupid phones. Online dating, Instagram, Facebook. Twitter, Snapchat, I could go on and on. There's probably 17 of these apps out now. People live inside their devices. They don't live amongst other people. They sever their interpersonal ties. That's the first preemptive strike. And it was, it has been, and it's been going on for a very long time. Couple that with basic attacks on masculine and feminine, on displays of leadership, assertiveness, desire, productivity, by men. And consequently, and in concert with that, attacks against receptivity, affection, containment, nurturing on the feminine side. And what do you have left? You have a vacuum of sexuality. You have men and women merging together into a neutered form where there is no gap. There is no energy. There is no electricity. There is no draw. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To quote David Data's work 20, 30 years ago, When there is no bipolarity between masculine and feminine, you lose a sense of purpose and definition in your sexual identity. And I don't mean genital sexual identity. I mean, in terms of the libidinous drive of the way that Freud talks about it, the the lust to create, to express. And that is true in both men and women, but it's expressed in different ways. And if it's not, if it's not delineated, you wind up with a big amorphous nothing. And so men and women In my practice, young people in my practice, I have seen preceding March, April, May, 2020, have been depressed, unmotivated, anxious, alone, frustrated. The men feel emasculated and the women feel undesirable and undesired. They feel ugly. They feel like losers. They're despondent. They're lonely. They have great (laughs) careers. They're making tons of money, but they go home and they eat Haagen-Dazs ice cream and they watch Netflix and they hope and pray that a boy will actually say, you're pretty, I want to go out with you. But guess what the boys are doing? The boys are masturbating to porn and they're playing video games thinking no girl will ever, ever, ever respond to my interest because I'm a toxic masculine soul who is a rapist and a misogynist because that's what I learned in school. And there are culture ends. And on every mainstream media. uh, Of course, everywhere. And this has been going on forever. That's why I want to be very clear that it didn't just happen. I didn't just notice this in spring of 2020. I noticed the antecedents way before that. I could never have predicted how bad and how quickly bad it would get. I mean, that was shocking. But I am not surprised looking back that things didn't proceed in the way they did because we set the stage as a culture, as a pol- as a political agency, as a, as a media conglomerate, as a corporate uh, behemoth. 
And all of that working together of those three powers has really set our culture up to just fall on its face, to flounder in the eyes of and in the face of really this massive virus, which 20, 30 years ago, men would have just went, ah, eh, whatever, it's a cold, it's a flu. And women would have said, well, my husband's not really that upset about it. I think it'll be fine. I'll just hang out and watch and feed the kids like usual. Well, that didn't happen. The men put a diaper on their face. The women freaked out and started <gasps> vibrating with hysteria and started to fill the role of the men. And everybody now is suffering from that. And they're all angry at one another and they're all scared. So we have to attack this, not from the point of view of a medical battle. We have to attack it in the point of view of a psychological and cultural battle, because this is actually a war. This is yes. a cultural war. And we need to make a decision what side we're going to be on. If we don't do that, we will fall. Yeah, there it is. And just for reference, the diaper on the face is, I believe you're referencing a mask. <laughs> <laughs> I call them face diapers. Yes. Yeah, I know. And that's the truth is that if anyone was just willing, and this is why I want to get back to the mass delusional psychosis, it's the delusional part, right? Because as I was looking at it, the data a little bit behind the scenes, because I was already getting turned on very, very early by like about April and certainly by May when I watched Pandemic One with Judy Mikovits uh, by Mickey Willis and over a billion people around the world watched that. Thank goodness for him. I have a feeling he saved a lot of lives uh, and will continue to do so. But nevertheless, um, I remember looking at the numbers and I was like, this is a 98.5% survivability virus. What is going on? Unless, you know, you've got, you know, comorbidities or all the other sort of things. What is happening here? So what, why weren't people just willing to look at the data, willing to think, willing to be rational? Can you explain that process? I'm often asked this question. Why is it that people who are otherwise intelligent, well-educated, emotionally balanced and stable cannot see the lies, cannot see the fact that actual treatment is being refused in order to protect an EUA, an emergency use authorization for a so-called vaccine that's either not a vaccine and it's, it's also neither safe or effective. Why right. is it that people don't see that most people, as you said, 98.5% of the population, it's essentially immune or to a large degree, this, this drug, this virus rather is irrelevant. Why can't people see that? Why can't people see that healthy people are not spreading disease? which is a basic foundational lie that we've been told for the last two years. Why are these things that I think are so obvious? Why are people not seeing these, especially well-educated, urban-dwelling, single women in LA, New York, Chicago, Spokane? It's an interesting phenomenon. And I, I've been asked, as I said, often, why is this happening? I can't correlate it to one specific factor because it's not an IQ issue. It's not an education issue. Um, it's not even entirely native-born versus immigrant, although a lot of immigrants from Central Europe see the propaganda, and so they're vehemently opposed to it. But there are also a lot of immigrants from other countries who don't see this at all, and they think it's all completely normal and fine. I think that there is, to some degree, a hypnotic predilection to a certain group of people. Like in when you go to comedy clubs, and the hypnotist who's doing the stage comedy, he pulls eight, 10 people out of the audience, just at random volunteers. And then he goes through a little ritual where he asks them questions for five, six, seven minutes, and he gradually releases them. One, two, three, four, five. So there's only one or two left on stage. What he's doing during that testing period 
is he's testing their hypnotic suggestibility. He's mm. trying to see which one of those people will respond to my suggestions, which one is going to cluck like a chicken when I tell her to in 10 or 15 minutes. That's how he's able to get rid of the people who challenge him, the people who say this doesn't make sense, the ones who maintain their rationality. And he only has the one left who is hysterical, easily suggestible, will follow his ridiculous delusional commands. And of course, she always does. And I say she because most of the time it's a woman. There are, there are men who do it too, but it's, it's overwhelmingly women. I think suggestibility to a hypnotic trance is a big factor. And coupled with that, the second factor that I think is also really important, especially now, is the absence of curiosity. Yes. Find yes. a person who is following this, Michelle, 100%. I back you 100% and all the, I'm going to go do the mass and the shots and they have no, or, and they have a, a huge degree of curiosity. You're not going to find it because the, the people that ask questions, I don't mean like cynics. I mean, people who are just asking questions, wondering, they do not fall prey to this and they don't have to be smart. I know a lot of very low IQ people who are completely, completely eyes open on yes, this issue. Sure. Completely. And my colleagues, my doctor colleagues, they don't have a clue because they're not curious. So that's why I always tell people when you want to confront someone, you want to assess someone's ability to join with you in opposing this insanity. The one thing that you have to look for is the presence of curiosity. And if you don't see the curiosity, if you don't get anything in their eyes or their words or their actions, that looks like they have a sense of wonder, a sense of questioning, a sense of inquisitiveness, don't waste another second of your time they are locked out. They are like the addict, the alcoholic who says, I don't need to stop drinking. I can stop whenever I want. My wife, she didn't leave me because of the alcohol. She left me because she's a bitch. He doesn't have any curiosity about the alcohol. Don't bother your, don't waste your time with him. He might come in a month or two and say, you know, I think the alcohol might've created a problem. I'm kind of curious why it happened. Now you might be able to speak to him, but right now he's lost. Many Americans are still in that state. Don't waste your time. They're not curious. They are in a hypnotic trance. Yes. So, and I fully get it. Uh, my own father, fearful, jabbed, curious. So he's not, he's like contemplating what he's going to do about the booster, right? And I love him and I will focus on my connection with him over his decisions uh, because that's more important to me than anything. My mentor of 30 years, uh, she's in her mid seventies, double boosted at this point. And uh, there's, it's just locked down, just completely glazed over. But I love her so much. I just would never do anything to cause any disconnection between us, right? So I've learned to agree to disagree with the people that I'm really close with. That said, for those who are listening, and they don't know yet maybe how to discern the two different people that I just illustrated is one clearly not open. There's no curiosity. Focus on your connection, right? One kind of open, still focus on the connection, but share as he asks and ask some great questions. How do we determine the presence of curiosity? What I do is I just make comments about things that I find to be odd, things that don't make sense. And I say, what do you think about that? Mm. For example, Alex Berenson posted a question about a month or so ago. I thought it was a great question. He said, look, I'm tired of throwing data at people who don't want to hear the data. They just throw it back at me. It's like throwing a, you know, a grenade into the enemy and the enemy just picks it up and then throws it right back at you and then blows you up. Stop throwing grenades at people. He said, I, I confront people kindly, softly, gently, curiously. And I say, gosh, you know, if this vaccine campaign has been going so well, what's happening right now? 
Yes. And it's, yes. It's, it's, very, it's very intentionally vague. What's happening right now? He's not asking a specific question with data, trying to create an argument. He's saying, what's happening right now? And then he pauses. He just shuts his mouth and just pauses. And he sees what comes back. You can tell so much by the response to that question. You might hear, well, I can tell you what's happening. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Right. Mm -hmm. That's coming from a non-curious mind. You're probably best to just drop that person right now from further conversation and move on to something else. But if the person says, what do you mean what's happening right now? That's a good sign. Now he's, he's kind of checking in with you. He's like, what do you mean by that? I thought everything was okay. Is there something I'm missing here? I want to know, am I missing something? Or maybe he'll say right off the top, he'll say, you know, I thought the same thing. I mean, we've been told that these vaccines work great. And I, I'm told, I mean, I got three of them. I mean, I, I, I'm totally on board with it. I'm still wearing a mask, but you know, I don't understand why are all these people with the triple shots and the mask, why are they getting sick? Do you have any idea? I don't get that. Perfect. That means this guy, although he might be afraid, he might be compliant. He's starting to wonder. He's starting to ask questions. He's got curiosity. So when you ask these kinds of questions or make these statements, you can tell a lot by what you get back. You don't have to spend an hour fighting. You just throw out a little, you know, little candy there and just see what they do with it. Are they curious? Do they want to taste it? Do they want to stomp on it? Do they want to turn their backs on it? You get all the information you need, and then you can make your decisions from it. This is so good. That's so rich and it's so easy. It's a perfect litmus test and anyone can ask those questions. The only thing that I would add for my listeners is drop the armor to prove, right? If, if you come in with that hard sort of loaded energy, they know. So you got to, first of all, regulate your own self. But I, but since mm-hmm. you, my goodness, you got a psychiatrist in the house, I, I want to ask you something that I know I've been thinking and a lot of people are thinking. So a lot of people sort of in the middle of what would be considered the mass formation, right? This delusional psychosis. And they have been just like you referred to as that example, jabbed, maybe boosted, but they're beginning to see and hear other things. How do you Mm -hmm. recommend those of us that know those people, care about those people that are in our community, handle that, deal with that, you know, like embrace that? It's this is where I'm really concerned for a lot of humanity right now. Those ones who are waking up and like, whoa, that might be what's happening to me. And just to quickly give you a, a data point on this, on this, Aaron Siri, uh, a vaccine uh, attorney who was just on uh, Dale Pitree's High Wire and represents the Informed Consent Action Network. Uh, I don't know if you happen to catch this, but he said VAERS is not accurate, which we all knew. VAERS uh, is reporting over 1 million adverse reactions as of about right now, over 20, almost 22,000 deaths from the COVID-19 injection. That is not easy to say. Anyway, VSAFE, a CDC reporting app specifically to the COVID-19 injection. Do you know by any chance what the CDC recently disclosed is how many entries have been reported just for the COVID-19 injection? No, I actually have no idea. Oh my gosh, this was like breaking news. I can't believe that everybody's not talking about this, but of course it will never make the headlines. 119 million. I had no idea. No, this yeah. is like news to me. Resource link on that from the high wire. You know how they put out wow. everything sort of, you know, it is absolutely indisputable. Aaron Siri would also never say something like that if, if it weren't. So that makes that Harvard study. I'm going to circle back in a moment. I speak circuitously mm. sometimes. It makes that Harvard study that came out 10 years ago that said VAERS reporting is at maybe 1% accurate. So now mm-hmm. we're looking at the VSAFE 
that was much more user friendly, right? So it was just like, oh, okay. And again, not necessarily all qualified, but 119 million, that proves the theory and the conclusion of the very thorough research that Harvard did over a decade ago. That said, a lot of people are experiencing adverse reactions. There's a lot. Yes, they are. You're seeing the insurance companies come out in America saying we're having anywhere from 40 to 87 percent increase in deaths in the past year. So this is terrifying for someone who has been jabbed. So how do we handle that with the utmost care if, if you have an idea on the fly? Well, first of all, you have to if the person that you're speaking with is concerned and scared about harm and damage, in other words, is sort of awakened. Fair enough. Making that assumption, of course, because if they're not, that's a totally different situation. You need to do whatever you can to ensure that no further harm is done. Yes. And that is possible with somebody who has had a shot and then recognized it was an error Mm. and is open to doing something about it in the future. Meaning certainly, first of all, not getting an additional shot, number one. Now, if the person, unfortunately, you're talking to has gotten a shot, may or may not have been harmed, and now wants to get another shot, there's not really much that you can do because those people are still locked away. They are still hypnotized. They are not curious. And I know it's difficult, but one of the things that I try to help my patients with as much as possible is to accept, similar to what AA says, you have to accept that you have limitations. And that there's some things you can't change and that everyone is ultimately responsible for his or her choices. And I know this is hard because a lot of people who are in the helping fields want to help, want to fix, they want to teach, they want to save. And the instinct to be of service to others is a lovely instinct, but it can also boomerang back against you because it can put you in the position of taking over the other person's agency and autonomy, not just only for success, but also for failure. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And I see it all the time in my patients. So don't fall prey to that. But if the person is recognizing that he has harmed himself, that she has caused long-term menstrual bleeding for eight weeks after getting two injections because she wanted to go back to school in the fall as a sophomore at Scripps College, like one of my patients said last week, and now recognizes that this was a mistake, that she harmed herself. And they're saying, you can't go back to school at the end of January when we fix the remote access and go back in person until you get a booster. Now that's an opportunity to say to her, you absolutely must not put yourself at further risk. Mm -hmm. And here's why, and here's how I'm going to help you with that. Here's how I'm going to support you in endeavoring to take the correct action in spite of your fear And in spite of is a very important phrase. I tell people, don't pretend that you're not afraid. Don't Mm -hmm. say, well, when I'm not afraid, I'll do X, Y, and Z. As they say on Dennis Prager's show, yeah, Dennis, I'd love to go on your Israel tour when it's safe. Well, you know what? It's never going to be fully safe because life isn't safe. And sometimes, often actually, you have to act not without fear. You have to act in spite of your fear. And you can do that because emotions don't control our behaviors unless we let them control them. Often, the most courageous people are the most scared, but they overwhelm and overcome that fear through action. Feelings, emotions, they come and they go, they pass through us. We can't control them, nor should we try, but we can always control our actions because ultimately, we are not defined by our feelings. We are defined by our actions. 
Mm, I love that. And the in spite of the fear is so important. There's really a theme here around the the uh, the call for courage that I believe that every single person on this planet uh, is being asked to rise up into and remember who we really are. You know, you've shared in so many different places recently about, you know, most people are no longer looking to themselves, their own inner authority for any sort of guidance. They're they're just looking to government. You know, and so yes, how they do we get ourselves out of the spell of this massive hypnotization that's fear that, by the way, the vaccine stuff is just the gateway to a hot, lot more stuff. The narrative is crumbling up before our eyes. I don't know if you saw the PM Boris Johnson make the big announcement that was all over the news or not real news, like the, the real news that starting next week, no more vax mandates, no more masks. Starbucks also announced today it was released to the Associated Press, no more vaccinations required for any employees starting now that they just instituted earlier this year. So it's going to crumble, but it's not the end. So I believe now is the time to start really preparing and fortifying and strengthening our ability to be courageous and think for ourselves. How do we get ourselves out of the fear? And I know this is in alignment with the new book that you're writing and it can't come out soon enough. Recovery from fear. Yes. A plan for individual and national recovery. This book is going to be modeled after AA and Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. And the first step is to face the mirror and acknowledge that you are a fear addict. You have to come to terms with your own addiction. That's the first step. The bigger picture. How do they're addicted to the fear? Well, you have to be honest. You have to be living in reality. If you're not living in reality and you're not honest, you're not even in the game. Fair enough. Addicts are, by definition, liars. And it's only to the extent that they become are, honest the that they can lose their addiction. I just have to say that. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt. And I'm really sorry about that. But you are known in your clinical practice for not telling people necessarily what they want to hear, but you just tell them the truth. So I just want to say that when you say addicts are liars, it's not because you're trying to be mean or sort of an asshole like that text that you got. It's because you're speaking truth. Sorry, I just needed to add that for that context, because I know that this is what makes you distinctively different. And it's what I love about you. And I know my listeners will love. So, so addicts are liars. I know I was, I was in denial when I was started drinking alcohol again during the pandemic. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to sabotage everything that I care about. So then I just completely let it go. Right. But I had to get honest with myself instead of lying. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's over drinking during this pandemic. And it was like, Whoa, I don't care what anyone else is doing. This is going to destroy me. Yeah. Loss of control and use despite harm. That is the definition of an addiction. And if you say that you can stop anytime you want, that's a lie because you can't because you don't have control. If you say, ah, I don't have any problems with alcohol. Alcohol's never caused any issues in my life. And you're divorced because of the alcohol. You've lost your friends. Your kids don't want to talk to you. You're going into the hospital because you've got, who knows, one of 27 different potentially fatal alcohol-related diseases. That's a lie too. So it's dishonest. And dishonesty is not a a good starting place to moving forward and and developing growth and evolution. So you have to look in the mirror and you have to acknowledge the reality and the truth, even though it makes you feel uncomfortable, even though it makes you feel diminished, even though it reveals flaws and ugliness. That is the way that we make ourselves better. We accept critique and critique comes from the mirror. It comes from reality. The bigger picture in all of this is that At the end, even if we win this battle, we have to win the war. And the battle is about shots and rights and medicines and 
closures yeah. and yeah, that's the, that's the battle. But the bigger war that you alluded to earlier is the war between independence and dependency. And the collusive powers right now, the government, the media, the large corporations, their goal, their end game is not just to keep us getting shots every three to six months. Their end game is total, complete dependency on the state. And that requires that we sever all parental bonds over our children, that we don't have any more parental authority over what they learn or what goes into their body, that children are now wards of the state and they will believe what the state tells them to. They will take the drugs that are told to them, that we will no longer engage in natural, healthy, biological attraction and dating and marriage and children and families that develop out of that between men and women, because families are very powerful sources and resources for one another. It means that we will no longer allow people to worship in whatever religion they belong to. We will destroy civic organizations like the Boy Scouts. We will control who comes to our aid when there are threats of physical violence. We're going to get rid of police. We're going to control fuel sources so that you can't drive a car, you're going to have to drive a battery-powered car or a bus or a sustainable form of public transportation so that you can't have freedom of movement. You're going to be told to put solar panels on your home. All of these decisions that are being made by the state are for one end and one end only, to force you, the American citizen, to depend on us, the government, and our allies, our fascist allies, our corporate and media allies that we are working together with force you to depend on us and not all the other people and institutions in your life. Because if you do, you don't need us. You don't need the government. You don't need the corporations. You don't need the media. And then suddenly we're back to the original declaration of independence of free American individuals all pursuing their own interests and they're being left alone. That is the bigger battle. That's the battle that we really are fighting after all this goes away and it will go away. And that's the war that we have to win because in the end, that's the only one that matters. I love it. Thank you very much for the optimism. Um, I think for me, I made a shift and it was literally over the past six weeks. I felt, even though I was out here speaking truth and standing for what I you know, want to create in the world and building like-minded community, mostly virtual because I didn't think I could find it in LA, but I know I, I can and will. But um, there wasn't like a deep-rooted optimism until about six weeks ago. And so I love that you say that. And, and I know what Plandemic 3 is about. And it's really paving the way for the future for a decentralized reality, for, for a way in which we can thrive and be independent of the system versus the great reset. You will own nothing. Mm-hmm. Happy. Now, there will be a lot of people that are fine with that. They're proving that right now. Anything you say, I will just not even ask a question. I will do it. But there's a whole nother sector that's that's a that's a mass awakening right now that's like, Maybe I want to be a part of that. So as we begin to wrap, especially on the tone of optimism, can you give us without giving it away a snapshot of really where you are and how you see us winning this ultimate war? I think it's going to really come down to whether or not we can accept that, A, we must be independent rather than dependent, that that's preferable. In other words, we must consciously assert the need not to be taken care of, Mm. but the necessity to remain free. Yes. And that has to be conscious because babies don't strive for freedom. Babies strive to get their butt wiped, to get dried off, to get the nipple in their mouth, 
to be kept warm. They don't want to be free. They want to be taken care of. I understand that. That's natural. That's normal. But it's not healthy and it's not good for an adult to do that. Mm. We have to stop that. We have to consciously resist that urge to be taken care of and exert our need and our quest for freedom. That is very, very important to be free. It also is going to require a second thing, though. It's going to require us not to just exert that conscious desire and also to take action. It's also going to require us to reject the idea that a human, a man, another Donald Trump is going to come and do that for us. The Messiah. The Messiah. Messiah. We, We are not going to wait around for Messiah and succeed. We have to accept the fact, the reality that it's going to come, the success is going to come from the bottom up, not the top down. It's going to come from grassroots. It's going to come from families of like-minded people organizing like they did in Virginia to throw the bums out, to reclaim their children's bodies and minds. That's what has to spread throughout the country. It has to be a cleanup operation by the people for the people, not by the guys on high coming down on behalf of the people. That will never work. It is a failure Those are the two things I think that we need. We need the determination, the clarity to reject dependency at a risk. And it's going to make us anxious and scared and fearful, but it's necessary. And to demand that we be free and we have to do it on our own. We have to accept the burden, the responsibility that comes with that. In other words, we have to grow up. We must learn to save ourselves. No one's coming to save us. Exactly. And we must be willing to face and feel it all and first admit that we're addicted to the fear, to the mainstream media, to the TV, to all of the programming, right? In order to liberate ourselves. I got the full body chills as you were describing. Okay, what do we do? What do you see? Uh, And that for me is always a confirmation of my angels and guides. Like, yep, that's happening. And yes, it's massive uncertainty. But I would much rather move forward with an optimism in my soul, along with my brothers and sisters in our like-minded community, moving toward what we want versus being terrified or enslaved by what's coming if you don't. The degree to which you grow and succeed, Michelle, is directly proportional to the degree with which you can tolerate uncertainty in your life. Mm, That is beautiful. Beautiful way to wrap this up. Uh, You have an incredible podcast with your friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff Barkey, called uh, Informed Dissent. I love that show. So that's a way in which people can get more from you. But where's the best place to find you on uh, the socials? I am moving away from all of them for various (laughs) reasons, although I still use Twitter and Facebook. But what I'd like to encourage people to do now is to look at some of my own self-controlled and self-managed sites such as my new website, which is called Dissident MD. And Dissident MD is where you can buy my book through a link to either Barnes and Noble or Amazon. And you can also go to my Facebook and Twitter pages through there. But more importantly, you can also link to my new Substack account, which is also called Dissident MD. And I'm posting there weekly. And my next column, which I expect to come out uh, as soon as I get my laptop back from American Airlines in Orlando... (laughs) (laughs) is going to be on dependence, actually, and dependency. And I'm going to try to publish that, uh, if not tomorrow morning, as soon as the darn thing shows up from FedEx, probably tomorrow evening. And that is where you'll also get more information on my Substack account eventually as I move further towards consolidating my ideas into my next book, which is the 12-step program to achieve freedom or recovery from fear. So Dissident MD is the place to go for me. And as you said, informed dissent 
or informeddissentmedia.com is the podcast and website, respectively, where Dr. Jeff Barkey and I kind of hash things out together and uh, also speak to some uh, really wonderful guests that uh, many people are quite familiar with. We're hoping uh, very soon to uh, speak with uh, Mike Lindell uh, and uh, Eric Metaxas. We've got a a big roster of people coming up. A couple of the very well-known pastors in the community uh, are offering to speak with us. We're we're ordering, I think, 150,000 listens, 50,000 just in the last three weeks. So it's it's really taking off. Informed dissent. It really is. I can't even tell you how honored I am and what a gift this was. Uh, It felt very aligned and meant to be, and your team let me know that it actually was. So I just wanted to say thank you. I know you flew in late last night, lost the computer, meetings and (laughs) patients and and you're here and uh, and you're doing such beautiful work to serve so many. And, you know, I heard uh, Dr. Jeff Barkey real quickly say that, yeah, these 12 step programs to recover from fear, we're probably going to have to open up centers everywhere across America. <laughs> and I got the chills and then I kind of started crying because I happen to be one of those deeply empathetic people. And I was like, yeah, probably, you know, honestly, like. I don't know who's going to run it and manage it. And we don't need to even worry about that. Let the how be the wow. Right. But the reality is that this is going to be a massive need when people actually really wake up to so much of this, uh, these battles. So thank you for the heart centered, courageous work that you've done. You are a hero in this war and I honor you. And I cannot wait to meet you in a couple of weeks uh, here in Los Angeles. So thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to Fire and Soul. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. And if you'd like to connect on social, you can find me anywhere at Michelle Sorrow. Or if you'd like to reach out to me directly, you can at fireandsoulpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.